Thank you, Jordan. And if we could turn the your scriptures to Second Timothy. And as you'll see on the screen, we're at part two of To Live Unashamed of Jesus Christ. And God willing, next week there'll be a part three and that'll be the end of chapter one. But let us read the text together and I will pick up at verse six and read right through to end of verse 12 uh, conclusively. Second Timothy chapter one and verse six. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, For this reason I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And may God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. As we've been looking into these last words of the Apostle Paul we have seen that the first five verses of this chapter were intended and no doubt were a great encouragement to young Timothy. But actually from verses 6 to 18, Paul has something different in mind. In these verses, Paul instructs Timothy, and I might say any believer who struggles to stand firm in the faith, especially when the going gets tough. And no doubt we'll all know something of that to varying degrees. So as we launched part one of this section, we launched it by asking ourselves the question, how do we live out our faith? How do we live in a culture that is so against the gospel, truth, without shamefully buckling under pressure? Because this is what was happening to Timothy. He was buckling. You see, Timothy is Paul's young son in the faith. He was Paul's protege. But just to give you a biblical kind of a makeup of this man, we know that Timothy was also a fragile man. He was a timid man. He also had health issues. Evidently, according to First Timothy five and twenty-three, and he's also given to emotional outbursts that some are not. Not that there's anything wrong with being emotional, 
But that's what Timothy was given to. Apparently, when leaving Paul on one occasion, he was reduced to tears. We read in verse 4 of this chapter. And so Paul exhorts this young man, this young pastor in Ephesus. He instructs this younger man who, on how to live and face persecution and how to face even imprisonment and how to face the difficulties of life and to live faithfully for Jesus Christ no matter what may threaten him. He struck, he instructs him about those things. And actually, we read at the end of the book of Hebrews that Timothy was released from prison. Did you know that? At some stage. So he obviously was put in prison for the gospel's sake. And so Paul's instruction did bear fruit in this young man's life. But at this moment, at this very moment, in the last moment of the Apostle Paul's life, Paul's swan song, his dying words to Timothy were, Be strong, Timothy, and don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't be ashamed of me, the Lord's prisoner. Now, as we saw last time, Paul isn't appealing to Paul to pull up his bootstraps, as it were. Like we might say. He isn't appealing to him to suck it up and, and be a man kind of thing. Paul isn't saying, dig deep into that inner self that you have, Timothy, and find that strength which lies within you and that potentiality that everyone has. Pull on that, Timothy, that potentiality for greatness. Paul isn't saying any such thing. Paul says that you've been given every reason, Timothy. You've been given every reason. You've been given every resource from God to be strong and to be unashamed of the gospel. And so this section actually right through to verse 18, from 6 to 18, is God's provision via the Apostle Paul for Timothy and every single one of us here this morning on how to live unashamed of the gospel no matter what or no matter how tough life may get. And the first means of being unashamed of the gospel was that Timothy and every believer need to fan the gift into flame, and we looked at that last week. Fan the gift into flame rather than allowing God's gift to be extinguished or snuffed out by the fear of man. And that can happen, right? Now this gift can be looked upon in two ways, several ways. It's not necessarily just the gift that Timothy was given to preach, and etc., but I believe it includes the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, the gift of knowing God intimately. That's a gift, isn't it? Jesus Christ was a gift to us. And the fear of man, you know, can snuff that out. Snuff it out in our hearts, snuff it out in our minds so that we are ashamed. And then we saw the need to, to activate our resources in verses 7 and that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of, the re, of resource of power and love and discipline and we looked at those three words and what they mean. And then finally in verse 8 we saw that we like Timothy are to expect opposition and accept it. Because as you know and as Timothy knew and Paul knew 
and the whole church right down through history, we live in a hostile world. It's no different today. A hostile world that is against God, that is against his gospel, and I might say originally was against Jesus Christ, and it's against anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and the gospel. You don't have to go far to find out, even in our society today. So Paul says to Timothy and every true believer, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 8. And then continuing this one long sentence in the Greek here, right through to the end of verse 11, what Paul does is he gives us further means for guarding against being ashamed of Jesus Christ. And as we cited last time, we didn't make mention of it, I just sort of left it dangling there. The fourth reason in this whole section is remember God's salvation plan and purpose. We see this as verses 8, or part of 8 into verse 10. And so what Paul does here is on this fourth reason is he, he kind of works in reverse, can I say, as he's just reminded us of the divine resources that every believer has. Only believers have those resources, by the way. In verse 7. But now the apostle gets down to the real core of why we never need to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he does here in this verse, he gives us a a miniature study of soteriology. In other words, a miniature study of the way of salvation. And as we look at that, you will note that this is not a complete statement of the gospel. So don't start thinking, hey Paul, but what about this, what about about this? There are aspects of the gospel here that Paul will refer to elsewhere that he doesn't refer to here. For instance, nothing is mentioned about the atonement, nothing is mentioned on the cross of the cross or the imputation of our sins to Christ. Nothing is mentioned about him being our substitute on the cross, nothing specific like that. Elsewhere, what Paul does in the scriptures, he gives us a full summary of all the different notes that make up the full melody of the gospel. And that's what a good interpreter does, right? We interpret the scriptures by by the scriptures. But here, in this verse, his purpose, Paul's purpose and aim is singular. What he wants to do is he wants to highlight the contents of the gospel that need and can motivate believers to live in this world without fear, come what may. That's what he wants to highlight. Because, folks, it's as we remember these truths and as we increasingly place our confidence and trust in them, that is when we are enabled to what? We are enabled, as Paul tells the Ephesian believers, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4.1. And the first thing that Paul brings to our attention here is that our salvation, end of verse 8, is according to the power of God. You see that? Now this truth can roll off our lips very easily and very quickly, but it's vitally important. This truth is couched in comfort for our encouragement. After all, knowing that the power of God is behind and before and underneath 
and overshadowing every aspect of our lives from when all eternity should convince us to say, like Paul did in Philippians 1, 4.13, so I should say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can say that with absolute confidence knowing that it's God's power that is at the root and the bottom of everything. He works through us no matter what the situation we may be in. But going further back, Paul then reminds us that this all-powerful God is the one who has saved us in verse 9. See that? But it's not only by his power that he has saved us, he also by his power sufficiently keeps us. This is a wonderful truth to relish in and to glory in and to rejoice in and to praise God about. You see, Paul pushes the same truth, by the way, in a number of other, other places, and one that stands out is Romans 8. Especially verse 35, where Paul there uses a whole bunch of rhetorical questions that rule out any possible hindrance to God's all-sufficient power to completely and eternally save us. This is what he says. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? In other words, no way, nothing. And then he goes on to say in verse 39 of that same chapter in Romans, there is nothing on earth or heaven that will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Folks, God's saving power through the gospel is not just for a moment in our history when we were plucked as brands from the burning and rescued from a wasted life, can we say, of sinfulness and ungodly living. Not just for that. The power of God does all that. Don't get me wrong. It does all that, absolutely. But it also keeps us. It doesn't leave us dangling. It keeps us. It holds us in His hand. God's power never lets go of those whom He has saved. He's our Savior, right? His power is such that our Heavenly Father is both willing and able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his gory blameless with great joy. Jude chapter 24, that's what it's about. That's what God's power does, folks. Paul also reminds us in Romans 5 and verse 10, listen to this. For if while we were enemies, as before we were saved, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son, which we've remembered this morning. Reconciled, made friends. We're once his enemies, now we're reconciled. We're made his friends. For if while we were enemies we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, listen to this, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What a glorious truth that is. This is all about God being absolutely sovereign in our salvation here, folks from start to finish. He not only initiates our salvation, but he also sustains it and he will complete it in glory. Now that's a great motivating truth to never be ashamed, amen? To stand for him. He has forgiven us, he's justified us, he's, he's rescued us from sin and Satan and death and hell. He's done all that 
He's dealt with our past. He deals with our future and he'll present and he'll deal with our future. Simply put, folks, God is our saviour. We are forever safe in the hollow of his powerful hand. John 10, 29. Great truths to cling to, right? Great truths to cling to. We also see that Paul emphasises that those whom God saves are also those who are called with a holy calling. See that? Kind of two things here. He saved us and he's called us. Now this calling here is not referring to God's calling of unbelievers to repentance and faith. This is about God's effectual or his effective call of believers. This is about God's effectual saving call that separates us from the ordinary and places us in the extraordinary service of the master. You got that? This is what this is about. So he's not only a saviour, but we are called with a holy calling. This is what this means here. Folks, our salvation is divinely planned and purposeful and it involves holy living in the here and now and will ultimately continue into perfect holiness. In other words, it's a done deal. A done deal. This must impress upon us the need to respond with obedience and love and devotion and submission to the word of God which is all part and parcel of the holy calling, right? Yet let me say this as a footnote here. There are too many Christians who glory and revel in the truth of their justification, yet they ignore their sanctification. That is their holy calling. There are too many Christians who love to contemplate the benefits of the cross, yet they hide from holiness that it calls them to. Sad to say. My dear people, one should not be without the other. As a matter of fact, if it is, you've got some serious problems, that person, spiritually. And the wonderment is that this effectual holy calling that involves God's eternal working and our present calling to holiness and our future glory, you know what? It has nothing to do with our works or our human effort. Or as Pete was saying this morning, it's got nothing to do with how good we are or who we are or what we have done. This is God's doing from start to finish, folks. How do we know this? Look at the next phrase, last part of verse 9 but according to his own purpose and grace. You see that? But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, the whole plan of God for our entire salvation totally rests upon his own purpose. That's the plan. You got that? His own purpose, that's the plan. And grace, that's the means of activating God's plan. Purpose and grace. In other words, just as God, by his own purpose and grace, we have come into faith, it is also by God's own purpose and grace that he stains and keeps his elect until every and single believer reaches perfection and glory. That's what this means. After all, 
Don't take my word for it. This is what Jesus said in John 6, right? 37 to 40. Let me read that for you just so you'll let it sink in. This is what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Wonderful truth that, isn't it? Wonderful truth. What this means is we do not by our own intrusion or by our own wills determine our own destinies. Have you got that? It was sealed and determined before the world began. It was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, Paul says in this text. By the way, Paul isn't saying this just because he's become a diehard old Calvinist in his latter years. He wants us to see that our salvation through the gospel in this particular section, because remember what he's wanting to emphasize, it's not a full melody of the gospel. We're seeing, see, you want a full melody, you go to other parts. In this section, he wants to see that our salvation through the gospel it is not some loose attachment that depends on what we, a lot of people call today as free will, or, or, or by some Johnny-come-lately with a shall I or shall I not kind of deal. He doesn't want believers to hold on to that kind of dodgy stuff. Our salvation is the decisive purpose of God. And you know what? We, every true believer, is all caught up in it. Every person who trusts in Jesus Christ. And not only is it something that begins in eternity, but this gospel plan and purpose, we see, has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this revealing here that we see uh, in verse 10 of course has to do with the incarnation. That is the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And that incarnation will include his life, it will include his death, it includes resurrection and it will certainly include his ascension. In other words, Christ is the center of this gospel and that's a truth we should never ever let slide or lose focus. So we can ask here, so okay, so with this revelation, with this revealing, what has Jesus done in this gospel plan? What has he done? He gives two answers in, in, in that in verse 10. First of all, we see that he has abolished death and brought immortality to light through the gospel. There's your two answers. Now imagine this. Think about this. Look about, think about the context. You've always got to go back to context. Here's the Apostle Paul imprisoned and waiting his execution. For the sake of the gospel, for Jesus Christ. And here he is, he's clinging to this truth that Christ is a center and he's abolished death and brought immortality to light through the gospel. He absolutely trusts in this doctrine and how he's passing it on to this young protege, Timothy. I love that. You see, Paul's life and circumstances are governed by his doctrine. It's never his life is governed by his circumstances. That's how it should be, right? God in Christ has abolished death. You know, this is not, a, by the way, escaping physical death. Don't get that wrong. 
Paul knows this. He probably may well even be able to count the days. Okay, I've got three more days, four more days, maybe a month. His, he knew his number was up, can we say. The word abolish here means to render an operative. That's what it means. Or, or, to, or to reduce the threat of death from being enemy number one. And whether you believe it or not, to the unregenerate world, to the unsaved person, to the world at large, old man death is still enemy number one, right? There's a lot of truth in that song that was once written. I forget who wrote it. Everyone wants to get to heaven, but nobody wants to die. But this abolishing of death through the gospel has the idea of removing the fear or the sting of death so much that it's not the end of for the believer. As a matter of fact, some of us who are kind of knocking up that three score years and ten and plus are looking for the beginning of life. Is that right, Kevin? Amen? Yeah, I'm not only looking at you, but I'm looking at one or two others. We all get old. Not that we want to die, but we do know, because God has said it, that our death is going to usher in a brand new beginning. And praise the Lord for that. Paul fleshes this idea out further in other places of Scripture, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55. This is what he says. When this perishable, that means this body, which is perishing, I've certainly known that in the last month or so, it's perishing. When this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There's Paul's rhetorical questions coming through. The sting is gone. Death for the believer is rendered redundant, inoperable. So the fear of death is removed. It's abolished. It's no longer enemy number one. It's been made redundant for the believer. But then Paul adds one more thing that Jesus has done for us in the gospel. So more than just abolishing death or removing the fear of death and rendering it inoperative, what has he done? Look at the text. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see that? He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, one of the main driving forces of all sorts of depression and mental disorders, I'm not saying it's the only one, but it's one of the main, is when a person loses sight of any hope or reason for living. You'd have to agree with that, right? Whether you're unsaved person or what, and I wouldn't like to think that Christians would fall into this category, but the gift of God can be so dimmed and snuffed out in our life that we can, sad to say. This is what happens. People will lose hope of any reason for living. It drives them insane. And, you know, and even the world, and I believe this is a kind of a general grace of God that keeps the world at large kind of sane, as it were. Even the world offers a hope and has many reasons for living, uh, which will include things like family, comfort, Financial stability, that's a big hope. Okay, that, that, that's something that really keeps a lot of people in the world running on this temporary treadmill and keeps them sane, supposedly. Even a false hope that we all know many of these things 
fall into the category of can give a hope that keeps a person from losing their minds and keeps them sane. But folks, let me say, the half has not been told, amen? Folks who dabble in the hope that this world offers are only dabbling in the temporal stuff. And all that phrase, whether it be family, whether it be love, whether it be marriage, whether it be whatever, it's only temporary. God has given it up to us for an enjoy, but it's not the hope of eternal life. We know something about that, don't we? Or we should do. Life and immortality. We, we should, we're actually the experts in this area, you guys. You know that? Life and immortality. And if you're not, you better wise up. I remember my brother one time when visiting an old war veteran who was dying in a hospital. He was asked to visit this old man. And this old war hero, he had seen one powerful punch of life. Everything life offered, man, from everything to everything. He had seen it and dabbled in it and enjoyed its pleasures, no doubt. But he was an unbeliever, of course. And my brother said to him, Tom, you know, I know you know a whole lot more about this world and all that it offers than I ever, ever will or ever, ever will want to. But let me tell you this, I know a whole lot more about the world to come. And so let me tell you about it. Believers should be the experts about life and immortality, eternal life and immortality. In other words, the real life insurance ad, I was just watching it the other night, real life insurance ad comes across TV. It is completely false and falls so short. You know what, that ad is only designed to make a, probably a company rich and, and maybe ease those who are left behind after a person dies, maybe ease their financial burden a little bit. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings real life assurance. This life is eternal. This life that Paul speaks about here is the immeasurable reality of, Im- reality of immortality. Think about that. How can we be ashamed, folks? How can we be ashamed of our Lord when he has brought this into our lives? And because of this, we need to be motivated to look past and smile at the ridicule. To look past and grin at the snide remark, the heat from the unsaved of family members and the temporary hopes of this world. Why should we look past and just get over it and get on with the job? Because our hope and joy are solidly in Christ alone. Because now we know the truth about eternal life and immortality. Amen. Another means of guarding against being ashamed of Jesus Christ is to understand your obligations to serve. And we see this in verses 11 to the beginning of verse 12. We won't deal with all of verse 12 today, just the first phrase. And so what Paul does here in these two verses, he draws from his own experience to pass on this valuable defense against falling prey of being ashamed of the gospel. And as you will well know, it was never Paul's intention to become a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Far from it. As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite. 
before meeting Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road in that blinding light from heaven from Christ himself. He hated with a fiery passion those who even aligned themselves with Jesus Christ. He was putting them in prison and no doubt some of them even died because of his actions. But under the conviction of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Acts 9, we see that Paul, he's appointed. That's what it says. He's appointed. That is, the Lord affirmed through Ananias that Paul, and this is what he said, Ananias said, is a chosen instrument of mine. God said to Ananias, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, Acts 9.15. So Paul was an appointed person by God. Probably not the person I would probably have picked out. But the Lord is all wise. Paul was God's man. And this was his appointment. And so how did Paul treat that? Paul valued and took seriously this appointment. He saw this responsibility that God was laying on him as vitally important. And he understood that from here on out, this was his duty, his obligation to serve for the rest of his life to serve him. He could say to the Corinthians on, an, on another occasion, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing in of myself to boast of. It's not about me. But I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, Paul took super seriously his appointed ministry to his Lord and Savior to serve him no matter what the cost no matter what the trial, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the ridicule, no matter, no matter what snide remark, even to the point of giving his own life, he took super seriously his appointed ministry. This deep understanding of his obligation toward the Lord and his gospel protected him from ever being ashamed. It was because of this, it was because of, of his obligation and duty to obediently serve the Lord as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher that he also suffered. You see that at the beginning of verse 12. Oh yeah, he put his life on the line. He was willing to go the second mile. His life and everything that he had was put on the cross as it were. Christ first, me second. And of course, he suffered for that, right? He suffered for the gospel. He suffered for the Lord. He, he suffered when fulfilling his obligation to serve. But you know what? Paul would never have it any other way. You see, folks, being faithful in the ministry always carries with it a bittersweet. As it did for Paul, so it will be for any of God's servants. And so it will be for any of one of us here. You make a stand for the Lord, there will be joy, there will be satisfaction, but mark my words, there will be pain, there will be ridicule, there will be suffering to some extent. There's nothing like the joy of being involved in serving the Lord and, and seeing people whom God works with and God working in their lives and bringing them to faith and seeing disciples made and nothing like the joy of seeing the hearts of God's people maturing and growing and becoming established in the faith. Nothing like it. 
And as you will know and may know, and I pray you do know, there is no joy that can compare to see your family, your own children, come to faith and to grow in the Lord. No joy can compare with that on earth. Because it has eternal value. Why, yes, to see your son or your daughter do well in university and get a good job and be on a super high page, that may bring a temporary joy, but it's nothing compared to your children growing in the Lord spiritually. Because all the other stuff is only temporary. It's unimportant in comparison. Just the other night, I relished the delight. Relished the delight it was to be with my brothers and sisters here in this place, fellowshipping with them in the Lord in prayer. With one voice and one mind, we prayed to the Lord, making our requests, worship, known to Him. What a delight. But alongside the sweet joy, whatever it may be, and however it may come, is so often the bitter herbs of being resented, being ridiculed, whether it's at school, whether it's at home, whether it's at the workplace, being despised and even hated in Paul's case, as it was in Paul's case, as it is for many others. For Paul, for death itself, that happens to many in our world today too. From what I read in statistics, there have been more martyrs for the cause of Christ in the last 50 years than ever has been in the history of the world. Would Paul have it any other way? No, he would not. Why? Because he was so much like his Lord. In the sanctification of the Spirit of God in his life, he became more and more and more like Jesus Christ, like the Lord wants us all to be. He became so much like the Lord, and that like the Lord he could say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what the Lord did. He didn't despise those who shamed him, but he despised the shame that was heaped upon him. And that was what Paul did and how every believer should be, my dear people. Ridicule and scoffing. You might be even called to endure in the workplace. The opposition from unsaved spouse or family. Even hatred vented on us by a liberal culture, and that happens heaps these days, doesn't it? You only have to have some link to social media and you see what people generally think of Christians or those who believe in Jesus Christ. But what is all this? It's, it's nothing. We may be able to say it's only a small price to pay, right? It's a pathetic, small and minuscule price to pay. Why is that? Because the joy needs and must always outweigh the suffering. The obligation to serve the Lord can be both painful and yet bring most joy. And Timothy was heading down this painful track, might I say, with little or no joy. That's where he was heading and Paul was concerned. And this can happen. This is why Paul exhorted him later on in our book, which we'll get there in chapter 4. Timothy, he said, you be sober. In other words, get your head straight. Focus. Endure hardship, he said. When the going gets tough, you endure hardship. You do the work of an evangelist. Listen to this. Fulfill your ministry. Chapter 4, verse 5. 
Fulfill your ministry. At this stage, Timothy was slacking up a bit. In other words, knowing your obligation to serve and yet slacking up and not fulfilling your duty will only bring sorrow and dissatisfaction and regret no matter how easy any other alternative may be. My dear people, on the other hand, there is great joy and satisfaction when you are fulfilling your spiritual duties of service to the Lord, whatever that may be at this time of your life, and we all have different duties. When you're fulfilling your spiritual duties of service to the Lord, even when the going is extremely tough, there is great joy and satisfaction. Let us be motivated this morning and from here on out to stand firm and never be ashamed of the Lord and his gospel. And say with the Apostle Peter that he did in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed but in that name, let him glorify God. May God bless his word to each one of us. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we have dealt with some weighty matters this morning. Matters, Father, that we may not fully comprehend with our finite minds and humanity, but Lord, your word is truth. And so we accept it. And so, Father, help us to be unashamed. Help us to be men and women of God wherever you have placed us in this world, in our communities, in our homes, to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ and never to be ashamed of the gospel. Let us stand firm. Let us to be good soldiers. Let us endure. Help us to endure. so that we will never be ashamed. So, Father, we pray these things, asking your blessing upon your word in our hearts and lives. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.